0: Good morning, and welcome to episode 640 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Perspectives, brought to you by the Play Index at baseballreference.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh of Grantland. Hi, Ben. Hello. Anything you want to talk about before we get to the uh, Red Sox portion of this?
1: Nope. I want to talk about the Red Sox.
0: All right. Well, later in the show, Sahadev will be talking to Alex Spear of the Boston Globe, but we have Tim Britton of the Providence Journal. Hi, Tim.
2: How are you guys? good how are you pretty good enjoying spring training yeah uh, what's it like out there I don't <laughs> <laughs> it's like 90 degrees warmer than it's been in Boston all winter so I'm not allowed to complain to any of my friends
1: uh-huh. got our spring training weather banter out of the way
2: <laughs> <laughs> excellent all right
0: so Tim I feel like I'm not I don't want to speak for Ben or for you or for anyone else but I feel like I don't give the Red Sox or Put enough, I don't know, criticism on the Red Sox for their last place finish last year. Uh, partly because I think that after 2012 and 2013, there's just like this feeling like, oh, this is just part of the plan or whatever. And partly because they're a well-run team that uh, you know made some good moves leading up to it, and they've made some good moves since, and they are a competitor already. And Dakota projects them to win the division and all those sorts of things. But there is something that, arguably unacceptable about finishing last place with 100 and I don't know 90 million or whatever dollar payroll and all that intelligence and everything like that so uh so i i guess you could tell me whether i'm not giving them enough blame but i guess what i really want to know is what you think was the flaw like we know what we know what the flaw was leading up to 2012. there's a very strong good <laughs> consistent narrative about what they did wrong in the years leading up to that what's the flaw of 2014 What they do wrong
2: you know I, I don't think it's a like a, an organizational flaw like a whole philosophical flaw in the way that it kind of was in 2012. Uh, in 2014, they just trusted young players, and maybe they trusted the wrong young players. You know, I, I think uh, you had, coming into that season, you had Middlebrooks at third, and Xander Bogarts at short, and Jackie Bradley at center, and those were your guys, and they didn't really have adequate backup plans for them. Uh, you know, they, they signed Steven Drew halfway through the season, and, and that clearly didn't work. Uh, and, but Grady Sizemore was the backup plan in case Jackie Bradley failed, and Grady Sizemore couldn't play center. So... Bradley failed uh, kind of spectacularly. Uh, He had the lowest slugging percentage of anyone since the strike of someone who had 400 plate appearances. Bogarts was, I think, failed even more surprisingly uh, in that, you know, for two months he looked like he could be a really good offensive shortstop and then went into a shell for three months and looked kind of like Bradley. And Middlebrooks kind of failed in the same way that he had in 2013, except they didn't have a Bogarts to bring up to replace him late in the year. So I think they, they... trusted that those young players would be able to make the transition a little bit more seamlessly than they did, clearly. Uh, And and then by the end of the season, the rhetoric we heard a lot of was, man, the gap between AAA and the majors is as big as it's ever been, and maybe we shouldn't do that anymore.
0: I bet Ben will ask you in a few minutes whether you think that's true. But before he does that, um, this was kind of what, uh, this was like sort of the, the thinking 10 years ago or 15 years ago that when the Yankees would have prospects, uh, there would be, and the Angels too. This came up a lot. There would be this thinking that uh, a team that's competitive all the time can't really afford to incorporate young players in, and so it makes it, um, you know, sort of an uphill climb for prospects. They don't have room to fail, and that's why, you know, the Yankees it was said would trade all their prospects away and all of that. And that really seems like the Reds Sox are committed to incorporating young players as part of their long term plan. But if you can't trust Bradley and Bogarts, who were both like top twenty five or higher prospects, and Bradley's defense gave him such a, theoretically, such a high floor, and Bogart's, there was like no prospect better than him. I mean, if you can't trust those guys, if those are the wrong guys, who are the right guys?
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I think they're trying to figure out now, is because, like you said, Bradley, you know, he, he was the number two prospect in the system. Uh, he wasn't a guy that many people projected to be like an all-star, but you figured, okay, at his worst, he'll be like, you know, a first division regular, or maybe not first division, but he'll, he'll be a respectable major leaguer, uh, especially with his defense. And he was he was he was just an untenable uh, offensive player last year. And Bogarts was I think you know it, people were not talking about him in the glowing terms that we hear about Chris Bryant, where you just assume that he'd be this MVP candidate right off the bat. But he was a, a fair bet to be one of the best offensive shortstops in baseball in his rookie season, especially considering what he showed at the end of, of uh, the 2013 postseason. Uh, so it really is I think the the difference between what the Red Sox did last year and maybe what they did earlier with uh, a guy like Dustin Pedroia, working him in 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 2007, was they tried to do it with too many guys at the same time, uh, to do it with Bogarts and Bradley, and to an extent Middlebrooks as an unknown at third. Uh, Whereas Pedroia was, you know, he was hitting ninth for a while. You didn't have to worry as much about uh, if he did fail, which he did for a brief period of time, uh, that that lineup was still going to be okay. The problem was the Red Sox lineup last year could not afford for for any of those guys to fail, let alone all of them.
1: So the starting rotation was the focus of this offseason, mostly because there wasn't one at the beginning of the offseason. So they didn't really fill it in the way that a lot of people expected them to fill it. And the four guys that they got, Porcello, Miley, Masterson, Kelly—Kelly Kelly was last year— I was just working on a, a preview for Grantland. Jonah Carey and I are working on our division previews and comparing— what guys are projected to do versus what they did last season. And all four of those guys are projected to be better, more productive than they were last season, but none of them is projected to be John Lester or Max Scherzer or even James Shields necessarily. So why did they do what could be called a a budget rotation rebuild when there were high-priced starters available?
2: Yeah, it was kind of a, a change of pace from what we expected, especially in July when they traded off Lester and Lackey uh four hitters for uh, Cespedes and Alan Craig, Kelly came in the lackey trade also. But the thinking there, and Ben Serenkin said it out loud, was that the offseason market wasn't very good for hitters. It is good for pitchers. We feel like we can spend our money on pitchers. Uh, and then they went out and signed Hanley Ramirez and Pablo Sandoval. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think they were probably I, I think they were a little taken aback by how much Ramirez wanted to come back to Boston and maybe that changed their plans, whereas maybe they were going to sign Sandoval and go a little bit harder after a frontline starting pitcher. But I think they reached their limit on Lester. The, the, their highest offer was, I think, $135 million rather than the 155 the Cubs gave him. Uh, and, and once they missed out on him, they then built a rotation in the next three days, which makes me think they didn't think they were ever going to get Lester. You know, they traded for Miley, which was a nice trade, trading uh, Ruby De La Rosa and Alan Webster, kind of two unknown quantities for more reliable one in Miley. Masterson is a pillow contract gamble coming off the disastrous season he had last year. Uh, Porcello, I think, is a nice high upside play uh, considering, you know, we, you've seen his, his feeling independent numbers over the last couple of years and, and how he kind of uh, matched them with ERA last year. Uh, I, you know, I, I think they believe that uh, between Buckholt and Masterson, one of them is going to be pretty good. Uh, and Buckholz certainly looks better in spring so far. Uh, he, he's actually throwing his secondary pitches uh, well, which he didn't do, I think, the entirety of last season uh, Masterson's a bit more of a question mark. I think they really like Porcello as uh, a potential kind of, I don't want to say breakout because he's already pretty good, but to kind of take it to that next level where he is uh, a reasonable game one starter in a playoff series, if not on that elite level, like a guy like Lester was.
0: I was going to ask you if the game one starter in the ALDS is on this roster.
2: (laughs) Uh, you know, I, I think they hope that Porcello can be that guy. But it certainly would not surprise me. I think the reason they don't go after a guy like Cole Hamels right now is because of what might be available in July with all of those pitchers who are free agents at the end of this, at the end of this season. Uh, you know, Johnny Queto is the name we, we talk about in Boston, uh, as a guy who, you know, could be that, that fill in. in in a division that's so flat. You don't necessarily need that guy for the first four months of the year. But I think if, if they're in a good position, it would not surprise me at all if they made an aggressive run at a pitcher, uh, by July 31st.
0: So I'm in a somewhat unique fantasy league. It's a 16-team mixed-league keeper format where players on any team name ending in "ers" are excluded. And any production by right-handed batters is multiplied by 1.15. And uh, at least two of the players I keep have to be middle infielders over the age of 30. Uh, The Standard 5x5, except only stolen bases from three years prior count. (laughs) Positional eligibility... Is credited only retroactively, and to retain positional eligibility, a player must start eight games or serve as a replacement in 125 at that position. So the question is: Should I keep Hanley Ramirez? Is he going to start eight games? At
2: shortstop? Uh, I, I really just wanted to say yes and leave it at that, but you you, you clarified it at the end. Uh, no, I, I don't. I don't expect him to play shortstop at all. Uh, Not at all, they,
0: really. Like zero games.
2: Zero. I mean, if you've like. I had never seen Hanley Ramirez in person up close until this spring. Like, he is enormous. I can't believe this guy played shortstop last season. Uh, We we think of Bogarts as a big shortstop, and Ramirez is so much bigger than Bogarts is. Uh, Just, you know, he's a little taller, but he's just so much more built out now uh, that it's hard to imagine him playing shortstop. He hasn't taken a ground ball this spring. Uh, They are kind of now all in on Bogarts. And if he doesn't show the defensive improvement they expect, uh, that could become a a problem with a ground ball pitching staff especially, but I, I do not foresee Ramirez playing shortstop Who is the backup? Uh, Brock Holt, of course
0: hmm, He's the, raising my he's arms he's the backup everywhere <laughs> Right,
1: <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> America's backup, Brock Holt. <laughs> so we don't
1: generally ask a lot of how has this guy looked so far this spring questions in the series. Maybe because we're generally not interviewing the beat writer in the first segment. That's Sahadev's job in the second segment. But there are so many guys on this team who are coming off terrible seasons or coming off injury or surgery or switching positions that it seems like there are some guys who you could at least get an early indication of what they're going to be based on what they've been so far. So have you noticed anything out of, say, Dustin Pedroia or Alan Craig or Justin Masterson, guys who are coming off of disappointing down years with possible surgeries and, and maybe the early going is some indication of, of whether they're back?
2: Yeah, you know, P- Pedroia kind of looks uh, the same as he usually does in spring, which means that uh, he's healthy right now. We can write stories about this year, Dustin Pedroia is going to be healthy, and then uh, by some point in late April, he will have suffered a nagging injury that's going to hurt him throughout the rest of the season, which is part of the reality of playing second base uh, for this long. And I know, like, uh, I've asked him about this, and, and he doesn't like it. Uh, he doesn't. He knows the aging curve for second baseman, and he, he doesn't concern himself with the fact that other second basemen have had trouble staying healthy into their 30s. But it's been a couple years now. Uh, you know, 2013, I think he got hurt on opening day. Last year, he got hurt in the first home series of the year, uh, which was the first weekend of the season. So he's he's gotten hurt in the first two, first week of the season each of the last two years. So I'm hesitant to, to put any stock into how he looks right now. Masterson, the velocity isn't where they would like it to be, uh, which is a little bit concerning coming off the year he had last year because it suggests that maybe he's not as 100 percent healthy as he says he is. Uh, Alan Craig, it's, it's kind of tough to get a read on because, man, he looked so bad down the stretch last year. Like He looked non-competitive in so many at-bats that him just you know getting singles every once in a while looks better. And, and his mechanics just look—he uh, looks more balanced at the plate and a little more comfortable. Uh, I don't know if he's 2013 Alan Craig, but he, I feel comfortable in saying he will be better than the guy who hit like 128 for the Red Sox down the stretch. And the other guy is Shane Victorino— who was going to go back to switch hitting, has just given up on going back to switch hitting and will now bat exclusively right-handed. His left-handed swing looked like a mess for most of spring. So I think it's good for him going back to to hitting just right-handed, but it it probably doesn't say great things about where he is physically that he had to do it.
1: I don't know whether left field at Fort Myers tells you anything about left field at Fenway Park, but how has the Hanley outfield experiment gone?
2: Well, they, they hope it tells you a lot because it's got its own green monster, uh-huh. uh, although that green monster contains a net and is actually a couple feet taller than they meant to make it. Uh, <laughs> so it's not Wait, a perfect— it
0: contains a net? What do you, where's the net? <laughs> um, it's like midway through? It's like a butterfly net or something?
2: <laughs> there, are, there are seats. It's a green monster. There are seats on top, and there's also seats within the green monster. They've got like a cutout in the green monster that's covered by a net.
1: Huh. Really, So there's no yes. bounce off of that it just
2: so right, huh. there, there's no bounce off of that net. I mean, like, I've actually talked to, to Ramirez and a couple of different guys about how different, how different that wall is than the one at Fenway. Uh, and the, the padding is different. Uh, so basically what I've heard is you only get a read off the angle. you know how, how the, the wall is angled differently so balls don't bounce directly back at you the way you might expect. And that's what you learn at, in Fort Myers and then you learn kind of the uh, idiosyncrasies of the wall at, at Fenway proper. But he's looked OK. Uh, you know, it's the, the wall will be the hardest part uh, with, with Fenway, but he's gotten decent reads on balls. He hasn't really been tested much. He made a running catch in the gap the other day uh, from what, all I've heard is that he has the athleticism to do it. This is what the coaches say. Uh, it's a matter of getting reads off bats, which we've, we've seen him do OK so far. Uh, and communication with other outfielders and making sure he doesn't collide with Mookie Betts, because as we established earlier, a collision with a man of Hanley Ramirez's size would hurt.
0: How does Dustin Pedroia know the aging curve of second baseman?
2: Because uh, several writers, uh, including myself and probably my my colleague Brian McPherson in particular, have brought it up to him on multiple occasions, uh, including the day he signed his contract extension.
1: (laughs) What's the confidence level on Bogarts as a shortstop right now?
2: You know, the, the, the coaching staff and all those guys say he looks a lot better. He spent a lot of the offseason in Phoenix with Pedroia uh, instead of in Aruba. With, with Bogarts, the things that he was bad at last year were uh, throws. Most of his errors were throwing errors. He, he was inaccurate. Uh, and he was also uh, slow on balls to the hole. He would generally get to those, but not in time to actually make a throw or to make an accurate throw. And we've seen so far in spring he's a little bit better at that. Uh, he made a nice play in the hole the other day and threw out Eric Young Jr., which is no small feat, even if the throw was a little offline. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, those are the types of things we're looking at in, in spring games is, oh, Bogart's made a play he probably doesn't make last year. Uh, he got progressively better as the season went on last year, especially when he went back to shortstop in August and September. Uh, he's pretty good on balls up the middle. Uh, but it's, I, I think the thought process with him is, He's, he's probably never going to be an above-average shortstop. It's let's get him as close to average as possible and then let the bat carry the rest. Uh, and so I think they're confident that that can happen within the next couple of years, uh, that, that he'll be just about average at short. Uh, and hopefully, for, for the Red Sox perspective, uh, he's better this year than he was last year. And I, I don't think that would be a surprise if he is.
1: And then eventually he'll morph into Hanley Ramirez and move somewhere. <laughs> probably
2: like it's i mean that's the guy he's been compared to for so long uh that it's kind of cool to see them next to each other now
0: so ben jedlevic of baseball info solutions uh, presented at uh, saber analytics conference last week um his work on defense independent batting statistics and the example he gave um as one player who this is kind of revealing of uh, is david ortiz who uh whose numbers overall dropped uh, last year, but if you look at his batted, bro- batted ball profile in uh, exceptional detail uh, and treat the balls uh, based on the likelihood that they would have been hit, it uh, was actually almost identical to the previous three years. So uh, that is a little bit of a long buildup to say. Um, is there? Uh, it, do you, does it pass the smell test that Ortiz is still showing? Like, literally no signs of decline. Is he as much a Silver Slugger candidate this year, MVP almost candidate this year, as he was when he was 35, 36, 37?
2: Yeah, I mean, it it certainly felt that way throughout last year. Like, you know, his batting average was down, but I, I, you know, while while Ben had not invented the stat to explain it to me, his bad was down. So I assumed that that was what was going on. And last year, he was, he was like the only part of that lineup. You know, Mike Napoli was hitting behind him. Uh, and was dealing with a whole host of injuries and including a sleep disorder we didn't really know about. Pedroia in front of him wasn't kind of the same player that he usually is. So there were, there were stretches of that season where Ortiz had driven in I think like 20 percent of their runs. It ended up at like 17 or something. Uh, and, and we saw teams pitch around him a little bit, we saw him chase a little bit more because of that and that probably contributed to the batting average being down. But in terms of actual production, I mean he hit something like five or six home runs that I thought at various points saved their season. I mean, that just happened before July, pretty much, because their season was wrecked after that. You know, I expected after 2012 and the Achilles injury, and he didn't take a single at-bat in spring training of 2013, I thought that would be the beginning of the end. But really, he's been every bit as good since then as he was before. So, I, you know, at this point, it's kind of like it was with Mariano Rivera, where you can't expect him to decline until he actually does, right?
1: couple of years ago, there was a lot of talk about chemistry, and the Red Sox were going after chemistry guys, and you got to get guys who perform well in Boston, big market, lots of scrutiny, et cetera. And since the Hanley Ramirez and maybe also the send of all signings, you've heard various people say this isn't going to work. They're not going to like this environment. It's going to be a disaster somehow. Is there any any sort of warning sign whatsoever so far that that that's a a legitimate concern?
2: Uh, It's tough to say, because I didn't know know in spring of 2011 that Carl Crawford was such a bad fit for Boston. You know, we heard team chemistry a lot before 2013, and this offseason that was kind of tweaked from we want to get good team chemistry guys to we want to get guys who want to be in Boston. Uh, Sandoval made that a point. He wanted, you know, quote-unquote, the new challenge of Boston, which, you know, is is perhaps just what players say after they sign a, a $95 million deal Uh, But Ramirez, it does seem, actually sought out the Red Sox and said, I want to come play for you. He'd always wanted to come back ever since the trade uh, for Josh Beckett in 2007, and and he was willing to switch positions to do that. Uh, So it's been all kumbaya on that front so far. Uh, I'm always just waiting for that first initial slump and what happens when fans start to turn a little bit. Uh, Because, I mean, you, you go back and look at Crawford. Crawford went, you know, I think he went hitless the first series of the year. The Red Sox got swept. He got dropped from third to seventh in the order. And by, by the you know, the fourth day of the season, Carl Crawford not being able to play in Boston was a storyline. Uh, so that, I think it's important that guys like that get off to a good start so that that kind of narrative doesn't uh, snowball on them. But I, I don't foresee that happening uh, right at the start of the season. I, I, think, I think these guys can handle it. And, you know, Sandoval uh, has played in, in San Francisco in big games a lot. And we'll see how Ramirez does, I think in, ter- in the clubhouse more so than anything. Uh, but I don't, there, there are no signs that would suggest that it will be a problem for them at this point.
1: Mookie Betts had a big day today. Mookie Betts has a big day every day. <laughs> what would you expect his positional breakdown to be this year in terms of percentage at, at each position that he plays? And is he everything that the projection systems say he's going to be <laughs> right now?
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, I, th- I think I mean the Bill James projection system had him being like peak era Wade Boggs, um, <laughs> but perhaps with more power. Like uh, <laughs> that's maybe a bit too high, but uh, right now I mean he's the opening day center fielder, which I wouldn't have guessed at the start of camp. Uh, but Rusne Castillo got hurt uh, and was kind of behind Bets to begin with. Where he plays during the season depends probably more on Victorino's health than anything else. If Victorino's healthy, he'll play right field and Bets will be in center. Victorino goes down for an extended period of time then I think you see Castillo in center and Betts in right on the the off chance that Pedroia goes down for an extent for a a while then maybe they they look at Betts in second but uh, like Ramirez Betts has not taken any infield uh, at all in the spring so they're not uh, it doesn't look like that's really what they want to be doing with him moving him back and forth at all I think they want him in the outfield as much as possible so I I think that's how the breakdown will work in terms of projection uh, I would have been a lot more comfortable being optimistic on him if we had this conversation last season before I saw what happened to Xander Bogarts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, w- I was super high on Bogarts, uh, and then he kind of fell flat on his face in the middle months. Uh, Bets, his ascendance through the system has been so rapid. I mean, two years ago, this guy was hitting uh, 150 in the first month of the season in high A, and now he's the, the opening day center fielder and leadoff hitter. Uh, I, I expect him to be very good. I expect. Uh, most people to chuckle at the idea of trading him by, like, midseason. But I I can't say that with the same kind of confidence that I would have last year because I've seen uh, players with similar track records uh, not perform at the major league level.
0: Pakoda's projection for bets is also uncomfortably high, but then I read about neuroscouting and now I feel like it's it's very safe. So uh, I think this is the last question, but um, Koji Ohara, one of the reasons he was available for so cheap to the Red Sox was that he was always hurt when he was uh, on the Rangers and the Orioles. He missed, like, basically extended periods of time, like 60 or 70 games or more in three of the previous four seasons, and he uh, he's 40 now. He hasn't been hurt, so far as I can tell, uh, at all since he joined the Red Sox, I guess for, like, a week last year, but really not hurt at all. But he is going to, it seems like, it sounds like, miss opening day, and he is 40. So do, have the Red Sox treated him any differently? Does that explain any of his good health? Over the past two years, and is there any reason to think that um, he might have to be treated differently now?
2: Uh, you know, they they were coming into 2013. They were very cautious with how much they were going to use Uehara, and then he started pitching uh, so ridiculously well that they kind of threw that caution to the wind uh, at stretches during the season. As the season, you know, as the season went on, they were you know. Uehara doesn't get up and not come into a game. I think that happens like once or twice. That's maybe happened five times over the over the last two years. Uh, he doesn't get those, you know, quote-unquote dry humps that relievers hate. For the most part, they've been, you know, he hasn't pitched on back-to-back day, uh, on like three straight days too often. Uh, but at, at this point, uh, I think the way the end of last season went, where he was dealing with a little back issue, uh, obviously from like mid-August on, there were some really bad outings. You know, I think he gave up more runs in like a, a six-outing stretch than he had in the entire season before then, which means it, it was probably like the entire calendar year before then because he didn't give up any runs in the second half of 2013. I, I think they're going to have to be more proactive with uh, giving Ed, Edward Mujica uh, a save opportunity here and there when Yuahara is down. Uh, but it does speak to kind of the lack of depth they have in their bullpen. Uh, they're really high on Alexio Gondo, kind of filling in as a late-inning option. But if that doesn't work out and if Uehara isn't completely healthy, then the, the two-year deal they gave him before free agency even opened uh, looks a little more suspect.
1: Okay, prediction time. How many wins? Where does it get them? You
2: no, know, it it's tough to say. I, I think everyone starts that way when they get asked <laughs> this question. <laughs> because, because there's there's what I think this team as currently constituted would do. Mm-hmm. And there's what I think this team, uh, if they show like a small weakness and then try to fix it at the deadline, would do. Mm-hmm. Like I, th- I think the Red Sox might have the highest ceiling of any team in the American League as a whole. I certainly think they have the highest ceiling of any team in the AL East. Uh, because if things break right, if if Porcello breaks out even more, if Buchholz returns to some semblance of his prior self, then this rotation looks a lot better to match a really good offense on paper. Uh, and they could be a 95-plus win team. But I worry about the lack of depth in certain areas. Uh, the starting rotation... Uh, if someone goes down, you know, the next man up is Steven Wright, who's a knuckleballer who's made two major league starts. And beyond that, it's kind of uh, pitchers who don't have much AAA experience even. Uh, and we talked about the bullpen. Uh, I don't know how they handle a, a, an injury to a major hitter unless it's one of the outfielders because they've got eight of them. So uh, my, my temptation is to, to just say, well, they'll finish in second place. I think, I think they're behind the Orioles right now. Uh, I'd, put, I'd peg them at like 85 wins or so, but that is essentially exactly how I felt before 2013 also, uh, and, and more or less kind of how I felt before last year. So, you know, I, I'm going conservative, I guess, saying 85 wins, uh, second place, and right in contention for one of the wild
1: cards. Yeah. I don't think anyone agrees on anything about the AL East, so <laughs> that's, that's fine.
0: Uehara <laughs> allowed as many earned runs in a six-game stretch as he had in his previous 92 games. Hmm. Not
1: bad. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you, Tim. Oh, anytime, guys. Appreciate it. All right. You can read Tim at the Providence Journal. You can follow him on Twitter at Tim Britton. He is a great beat writer, one of many great Red Sox beat writers. Boston Market should share the wealth, beat writer wise. We didn't really get to talk about Castillo. We didn't get to talk about Clay Buchholz We didn't get to talk about the catchers. Christian Vasquez is becoming one of my catcher crushes. But we have to leave something for Sahadev to talk to Alex Speer about, and you will hear them talking after the musical break.
3: Welcome to the second half of the Effectively Wild podcast. I'm Sahadev Sharma, associate editor for Baseball Prospectus. With me is Alex Spear, sports reporter at the Boston Globe, and we are going to preview the 2015 Boston Red Sox. I am going to start it off right with the rumors, Alex, those fun rumors that everyone wants to talk about, the Cole Hamels. Did, is this going to be revisited? Is it? Is he going to be a Red Sox by come July? Is this? Is this something that we're going to be talking about for a while because they just may not have that top of the rotation arm that everybody uh, that everybody thinks they need. And uh, will they be willing to give up a guy like Betts or Swihart? You think?
4: Well, I, I guess to start with, uh, will we be talking about it for many months to come? I think so, just because. Uh, I don't think that the volume of discussion about it has any uh, – it, it, doesn't, it doesn't need to be directly proportional to the actual amount of time that the Red Sox officials are spending on it. So um, it makes for a fun, speculative fodder, but um, it, at least with regards to the betts part of the equation, I think that's, to me, just a flat no. Okay. Um, I, I think that the only way that the Red Sox would give up their kind of centerpiece prospects – is if they found, look, they have to find, there has to be something, something beyond just a pitcher available on, uh, on close to a market value contract. Um, if you're going to deal one of your kind of centerpiece potential all star caliber prospects. Um, and even granting the idea that, you know, prospects are unpredictable and that, you know, and that there is this kind of significant barrier, uh, entry barrier into the big leagues at this point. Um, and a guy like Swihart may well endure a year or more of struggle in the big leagues. Um, you know, the, the potential upside there is is enormous to the point where, to me, the only way that the Red Sox deal, they, they aren't dealing Mookie bets. He looks too good. Uh, there's too much that he's already shown he can do at the big league level. So the only way that they would think about dealing a guy like a Swihart is, number one, Christian Vasquez would have to prove he's really good at the big league level, which remains an unknown. But if you're going to be dealing a Swihart, you need to know that you're dealing from an area of depth. And then number two, you need to find a pitcher who's either in the right age demographic or in the right contractual demographic, which is usually a guy who's, you know, who's signing that first deal uh, that, you know, who has many years of long term control at below market rates um, rather than at full market rates. Uh, and then, you know, someone who, right, the, the age part of the equation is, is huge. And, uh, you know, uh, Cole Hamels is a really good pitcher right now. He, he doesn't, you know, his, his contract isn't that great a deal for, uh, for a team that's dealing away a top prospect. It's, you know, a $24 million a year luxury tax hit for four years, uh, plus another season of, of it being what, uh, a $14 million on top of that as a luxury tax hit if he seeks to have it guaranteed. So that's not a great deal. He's in his thirties. He has 1800 plus innings in his career. There's some kind of invisible cliff. That may exist out there. So uh, I don't think that he uh, I don't think that he falls into the right demographics for the Red Sox to deal a centerpiece prospect.
3: Uh, You touched on it there. Uh, Christian Vasquez and Swihart kind of obviously they play the same position and we got Ryan hand. They just signed Ryan Hannigan for uh, I believe through 2016. So what, traded
4: for him, he had already been signed by ah, the Reds.
3: That's yeah. what, yes, that's what it was. Uh, so they acquired him, and now they it, now they have essentially, you know, Swihart's not going to start with the team. But is is that a situation where it's just you know wait and see? We'll figure out how this shakes out. How, how you usually uh, figure things out when you have multiple prospects at one position?
4: Yeah, the good thing for the Red Sox is that they're in a position where they don't have to rush Swihart. They don't have to put the proverbial cart before the horse. Um, which is something that they were kind of doing last year when they experienced profound struggle when uh, when simultaneously Will Middlebrooks and Xander Bogarts and Jackie Bradley Jr. were all overmatched at the big league level um, for significant stretches of the season. Um, and then the solutions that they had to that, uh, at least in the case of Middlebrooks, was signing Steven Drew and his weird you know, build-up to the season meant that he was overmatched at the big league level. Um, lots of compounding problems. But uh, at any rate, with Swihart, he's a guy who... Um, who's going to require further development? He has to develop as a game caller. He has to develop some technical aspects of his game. Although he's crazy athletic, so those should come pretty well. But he also has to develop two different swings because he is a switch hitter um, and learn to hit advanced pitching. And in his initial exposure to advance to advanced pitching la- at the end of last year in AAA, when he may have been tired, um, he he was not great. He was uh, you know a guy with a sub 300 OBP who was swinging and missing at uh, at pitches that were in a lot of different areas outside of the strike zone. Um, And so he's someone who th- this is this is to their benefit um long term if they're able to give both him and Vasquez time to figure out exactly what it is that they're going to be. Vasquez, you know, is an electrifying defensive presence. Um, whose offensive, who, whose offense remains a bit of an unknown, uh, you will hear some people mentioning, well, you know, uh, Yadier Molina didn't really hit until he turned uh, a little bit older. There's, um, with the, with catchers who come from, who happened to come from Puerto Rico, uh, there is some, you know, historic evidence of guys, uh, who had a defensive development curve that, uh, that was a bit steeper than their offensive development curve, but nonetheless had. Um, significant offense coming behind their defense. And so the Red Sox are kind of fingers crossed hoping for that with the but they don't know. And the lesson of last year is um, if you don't know, then you should keep assets until you know which one you really want to have around.
3: Mookie Betts is fascinating to me in the sense that uh, he... The number of times I've uttered that
4: sentence in my life is <laughs> innumerable.
3: Please continue. i I've just... I guess you know I follow prospects pretty closely, and I'd heard of Mookie Betts, but I I'd never gotten the sense that this guy was a top top tier prospect, elite prospect, or anything like that. Did the, the, the development really take place last year? Was there just a step up, something click? Did were were people overlooking him? Was he hyped within the Boston area? And that's another thing: Boston prospects usually get their fair share of hype, and I don't remember hearing a lot about Betts until last year. Something. It, something just clicked with him is that what happened and and he these skills just uh took off
4: i'm the wrong person to ask because i literally wrote about him 120 to 150 times in the 2013 season (laughs) um and so i'm i'm not the right i'm i'm not a good i'm not a perhaps representative person i i i believe that i i I was the one who introduced the phraseology of of feats of mookie to the world um (laughs) and it has uh, taken on at times, a life of its own, or at least at times, um, a life that I have, uh, you know, I, I have, you know, beaten to a, you know, I, I have beaten to silliness. But um, at any rate, so Betts uh, was a, he was not a, he did not have a very impressive prospect profile in 2012. Uh, when he was with Lowell in his professional debut, um, there was no power to his swing. There was no hard contact. What there was, was an ability to control the strike zone. And some impressive defensive raw tools, even though he's moved off of shortstop quickly because he committed a bunch of throwing errors there in a very short span. So Devin Morero gets drafted, he ends up being the everyday shortstop in Lowell. They move Pets to second base, and it looks like, okay, maybe this guy has the utility future. He can run a little bit, he can get the bat on the ball, and he can take some walks. That's you know, so there's some OVP there. Um, you know, the but but it's not necessarily profiling like an everyday player. Then all of a sudden, the beginning of 2013 happens, and it was one of the weirdest statistical months ever. Um, he was uh, he had a non-base percentage that was for a time in that month of April 2013 close to 400, despite a batting average that was often flirting with 150. And you know it was it, it was kind of difficult to reconcile these aspects of his offensive game. But as you started digging in, hearing people saying he's making a lot of loud outs, there's something there. And then all of a sudden he uh, he started integrating into his approach. Um, A little bit of a a timing mechanism, a leg lift, and he has, you know, great athleticism. And so all of a sudden that leg lift, boom, he starts kind of being on time to the ball, uh, planting a little bit and driving the ball with, you know, kind of startling frequency um, as an extra base guy. And so, you know, all of a sudden you're starting to see him drive the ball out of the park with intriguing frequency, still a ton of bases hitting for average, still not striking out and still walking, and so 2013 was really his breakout year because that was the year where he excelled at single A Greenville. He got promoted in July to uh, to high A Salem and he was even better there. He was probably he might have been the best player in, in the Carolina League as a very young player, 20-year-old, um, in that in the rest of that season. Went to the AFL, and the feedback you would hear was well, if you put this guy next to Garen Cicchini and just look at the tools, anyone's going to come away thinking Betts is the better prospect. And, you know, there, there was so he really started to to make that push in in 2013. Then 2014, even though he only had about a month and a half in high A, they have him open the year in double A because he showed so well in the AFL. He was probably the best player in the Eastern League during that time. And so then, you know, then you have this kind of rocketing, uh, this rocketing period to trajectory to the majors. And he wasn't that good to start in the majors last year. It's kind of. Easy to forget that um, last year on the day that they signed uh, Rusne Castillo, he was hitting, you know, low 200s with a, I believe, a sub 300 OBP, uh, not much power to show for it. Um, And then it was it was after Castillo was signed that all of a sudden, you know, you started seeing a lot of the stuff that you saw from him in double A and triple A. Uh, at the big league level, down the stretch, he hit, you know, he had well over 300 with a non-base percentage close to 400, a slugging percentage over uh, of roughly, you know, of 500 uh, ish over the last five plus weeks of the season. Um, and again, making a lot of contact and not striking out much and taking his walks. Um, so there there's an awful lot to like. Uh, it, there, there was there, there was an awful lot he did over a two year expanse to just excel at basically just about every level. Of, uh, of professional baseball
3: yeah it looks like a, it, it, from the sounds of it everybody's convinced that this guy's a, a, a superstar in the making so it, it, it's going to be fascinating to c- continue to follow him and see see where it leads uh obviously he's there's the the outfield is kind of jammed uh jam-packed with uh a talent and veterans uh young guys all, all sorts of different players are all vying for three spots uh you mentioned castillo what is he is he the starting center fielder? Is that bets? I I'm, I honestly don't know where they where all these pieces fit and what what do they have in Castillo? I, I know uh, early on I'd heard issues about his uh, his approach at the plate. It may be a little too aggressive, and he's swinging at uh, you know pitches that he has no business swinging at. But how how have things looked in spring for him.
4: Well, he's been injured for part of it, so that might help to actually resolve the law jam because he had, he had been down for a couple of weeks with a strained oblique, okay. um, and he came back and hit a bomb in his first at-bat, uh, at bat at bat back, so showing some of the uh, some of the raw power. that kind of came on once he started in on the showcase circuit last year. That's um, intriguing, but th- there's a decent chance that because his reps in spring training have been limited, that he ends up opening the year in AAA Pawtucket as a very very well paid outfielder. Uh, who is in AAA. Um, but, you know, bets, it is, it's virtually impossible to imagine the Red Sox opening the season without bets as their everyday center fielder. Um, he's too valuable to them in, in terms of fitting the profile of a leadoff guy. His, you know, the, the confidence in who he can be as a performer is too significant to really, um, to really kind of turn away from, uh, from his overall potential. Um, that said, You know, the Red Sox are kind of content with this idea that, okay they have bets they have Shane Victorino and they think that, you know, they want to see if there's what what exactly they have in Victorino final year of his contract. uh, He is, uh, you know, he when when he was when he was healthy in 2013, he was their best player. Um, He was probably better than he was. You know, they they had Ellsbury Victorino and Pedroia as these kind of well-rounded players. Victorino was the most impactful of them when he was on the field, which wasn't as often as Ellsbury or Pedroia, but he was really, really good. And so, you know, they'll see. And maybe maybe Victorino proves that he is still capable of, of performing at an elite level, in which case, okay, you've got Castillo there in case he gets injured uh, or in case Hanley Ramirez gets injured. Uh, he's in the minor leagues. Or, you know, if Shane Victorino looks like he is never going to make it back to where he was in 2013 as he kind of makes these, um, you know, these he, he's he's in this weird pendulum swing between being a full-time right-handed hitter and a switch hitter and a full-time right-handed hitter and a switch hitter and now he's declared that he's going to be a full-time right-handed hitter this coming year. Um if if it doesn't look like he's look look like it's there for him, then they have Castillo who's actually done nothing but impress since he signed with the Red Sox. Uh he's shown raw power. He he does swing aggressively, but I don't think he, he swings at bad pitches necessarily. Um, he swings mostly his strikes. It's just all over the strike zone. He's swinging. So he's not going to take a ton of walks, but he doesn't strike out either, uh, which, you know, so you can see a guy who would be kind of high batting average, low OBP guy with some power ability to make a little bit of an impact on the bases. Um, you know, you could forecast him being at his at his peak, maybe a 2020 20 type of guy um, who is able to play above average defense in center field. So that's a pretty good player.
3: Yeah, certainly. And someone I don't believe I heard you mention, and it, it, you know, was was the future at center field at one point, and now you don't hear much about him. Jackie Bradley Jr. Where does he fit? Is he trade bait now? And if so, I mean, it's it's kind of uh, you're selling low, I guess.
4: Yeah, the big question for them is going to be figuring out whether or not they will be interested, whether they would entertain trades for him in, <clears throat> excuse me, kind of the medium term. And I think that you know, there's there's this window right where like Victorino is only signed through this year. And then, you know, and so then you have Henry Ramirez and Mookie Betts uh, and Ruzne Castillo. But you don't really have a uh, you don't really have another center field slash right field uh, type talent who would, you know, defensively who would be available to you. And so there's there's this gap that exists between uh, between Victorino and Manuel Margot, who finished last year in high A and is probably going to be starting there. That's a couple of years. So, you know, Bradley might be pretty valuable to them over the next couple of years Um, As a depth option, but it it would be it's right now it's hard to see a clear path for him onto the major league roster into a regular role on the major league roster Um, unless it was as a like kind of defensive closer fourth outfielder type. There were some games last year in August when he entered late and just made insane amounts of impact uh, just by virtue of being able to rob Mike Trout of like six hits at a time. Um, It was like a matrix out there. Um, He is, you know, he's he can be the most, you know, the most kind of impactful late inning defensive replacement in the major leagues, hypothetically. Um, But aside beyond that, seeing a, a more regular role for him, seeing as valuable a role for him with the Red Sox as he potentially could have with another team that believed in his bat. It's hard to see that aligning.
3: The first line in the BP annual for Clay Buchholz uh, essentially says uh, he's been in the league for nine years and what we've learned is, and then there's that uh, shruggy emoticon that we all know from, <laughs> from Twitter. It, can can you tell us what, we, what Clay Buchholz is? Do you, do, you, do you have an answer to that? Or do, does Boston, does anyone know what, what we're going to get from Clay Buchholz? Uh, no, I, I think the track record, you
4: know, suggests that we pretty clearly do not, Um you know, he is someone who, when he's healthy and believes that he's healthy, um, is incredibly good. His ability to kind of just manipulate the baseball is is stupid good. He, you, there are these stories about him. Like, in his first Major League start, Jason Baratek started calling for a two-seamer. And, and Buckhold said, well, I would never thrown a two-seamer to that point in my life. But I wasn't <laughs> going to shake him off. So I just started throwing it. And it worked pretty well. So he just kept calling it. So then I started being a two-seam guy. And there was another game where his changeup hadn't been working in I think 2012. So in the bullpen session, he like right before going out to uh going out into the pen, he talked to someone about like, you know, so how do you throw a split? And they were like, this way. And it's like, okay. And so he introduced it in the bullpen, and then from that point on, he used the splitter uh, very awesome. effectively both in that game and going forward. <laughs> um, he has an incredible feel for pitching. Like there's actually a it it, it does get skirted over. Like there's a certain degree of artistry that he has as a pitcher when he's feeling good about himself. The problem is there are numerous occasions when he doesn't feel that good about himself. Um, And, you know, they are a a lot of the time it's for, you know, uh, well, he gets subjected to, to a considerable amount of scrutiny about whether or not he's fragile, et cetera, et cetera. We can't really answer that part of it. All we can know is whether or not he's pitching and whether he's pitching well. And there are a lot of times um, when given the level of talent that, that, you know, absurd, precocious feel for manipulating pitches, um, when he doesn't pitch up to that capability, to the proverbial ceiling, um, that was so tantalizing when he came up to the big leagues all those years ago. And that he's shown on a couple of occasions when he was second in the American league in ERA in 2010. And, you know, again, when he was, you know, when he was giving up no runs at all in, uh, in 2013, um, but no, I I, I don't – to answer your original <laughs> question, I, I, I couldn't tell you what he's going to be this year.
3: Yeah, I figured. I uh, to, But I, I figured I may as well ask. Uh, <laughs> but I,
4: would, I would also tell you that I can't tell you what anyone is going to be this year. <laughs> That's That's a good I, point. <laughs> I, I, I embrace the world of uncertainty.
3: Uh, well, speaking of uncertainty, Dustin Pedroia, a lot of – I mean a lot of hand, wrist, thumb issues over over the past uh, – yeah, I think he had surgery last September – uh, where does he stand health-wise, and can we ever expect him to be a power hitter again? I mean, that, that slugging percentage has just tumbled over the past few years, and and it was sub 400 last year. It, can he can he come close to reg- regaining that, that form, that MVP form?
4: Great question, and uh, and I will tell you that I am uncertain of the answer to that <laughs> question. Um, I I think that you know he's got the strength in his hands is back right now. Uh, The way in which he's been able to drive the ball in in spring training has been clearly distinct from what he was able to do. Like he's been he's spent the better part of two years just kind of punching at the ball. Um, And he has great hand eye coordination so he can kind of volley it into different parts of the field. It's a kind of like modified Ichiro, I suppose, like just in terms of like having great back control and spraying some hits around um, and working and figuring out how to uh, how to work some walks as well. Um, he's able to drive the ball now in a way that's distinct from what he's done. However, um, it's also the case that Major League Baseball uh, has has become really adept at working to the bottom of the strike zone, which is you know the bottom of the strike zone is itself expanding as we you know as we've seen in, in numerous studies, and that's not the place. So that's not where Dustin Pedroia gets his slugging percentage from. Like, and you know he's not exactly alone in that, right? But like, it used to be that all of his doubles. All of his home runs, or at least it felt that way, were from pitches that were like at his neck up, which is a stupid area for it to be coming from, right? But like this was his wheelhouse. This is, you know, he turned on pitches in that region like no one else, maybe that I've ever seen. And pitchers stopped working there, and they've become much better at just staying at his uh, at his little tiny knees. And uh, and so you know, there's there that's the other component of Justin Pedroia's precipitous drop in slugging percentage, and as long as Major League Baseball is really good at that, it's going to be hard for Dustin Pedroia to get all the way back to where he was as a slugger in those kind of startling seasons of 2008, 2009, 2010. Um, and uh, But that said, he can be uh, he can be a, a far better hitter uh, than what he's presented in the last couple of years if he can keep his hands healthy, which is pretty tough to do when you dive on average 3,000 times a game. Yeah.
3: <laughs> uh... A guy who I, I guess I thought many thought his career was pretty much done. Uh, Big Poppy a few years ago, what was it, two thousand eight or two thousand nine? Two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. He just started awful, if I remember correctly, and most of that season he wasn't very good. Uh, but obviously he's he had thirty five home runs last year, and thirty five home runs, and now nowadays is a lot of home runs. And I believe he's gonna. This is his age thirty nine season. How much? how much does he have left in the tank? I mean, can this guy continue to produce at that level or should we expect a significant drop-off? It's no. unanswerable, <laughs> yeah.
4: right? Like, can't, <laughs> how, how on earth can you, for, like, you couldn't have rationally forecast him no. as being this successful, a middle-of-the-order slugger through his age 38 season. And so from that vantage point, you know, you can you can do all you want in terms of playing the games, of looking at the historic comps. There, there aren't enough for it to be a meaningful sample of them. Uh, you can, uh, he is a brilliant hitter. I think that beyond his physical prowess in the batter's box, it is worth recognizing that this is someone who's incredibly sophisticated and intelligent when it does come to understanding what pitchers are trying to do to him. You never see him getting fooled, uh, he is, you know. There is a degree of certainty in what he does in the batter's box that is striking and that actually stands in the stark contrast to what was happening in 2009 when he was basically losing his mind um, because he had no idea what was going on until he figured out uh, that he had been, in, in recovering from from this wrist injury of 2008, he had kind of been looping his his bat and it had been creating a lot of pop-ups and swinging under pitches, et cetera. Um, I don't know. I, I wouldn't bet against him because I've seen him, Defy any expectation for decline that I've had for a lot of years. Uh, I also, you know, would, I would, it would, it it would only be with reluctance if I were the Red Sox, um, that I would, uh, that I would commit to needing him to be a great hitter in order for them to have an elite offense. And so I, I think that they, they bought themselves quite a bit of insurance by acquiring guys like Hanley Ramirez and Pablo Sandoval. Um, to go into that lineup and make it considerably deeper uh, just so that, you know, they, they have scaffolding around Ortiz to make it a ferocious middle of the order if he's healthy. Uh, and if he continues to perform at this absurd uh, at these absurd heights and, you know, if he if if he actually shows that he is, you know, that the, what we've been expecting for years in terms of progression Well, then, you know, they have other guys who can also do some load bearing.
3: How has uh, Pablo Sandoval uh, fit in with this group? I, I know he caused some uh, caused a little bit of drama in San Francisco when with, with the comments that he made, uh, basically saying the only people he missed were Hunter Pence and Bruce Bochy. How was that received in Boston? Was that just kind of brushed up, brushed aside and said no? How cares? was it
4: received in the panda community over there? Those <laughs> people were those freaking things at games for all that time like those those weren't free i don't think they must <laughs> have that. a lot of money and panda heads that <laughs> they were wearing at baseball games for years and years um so that part is like that that's this kind of like weird footnote to his spring um the fact that if anyone asks him about san francisco he's now kind of mentioning you know mentioning without too much you know hesitation oh no, yeah yeah i'm I'm, I'm angry at everyone out there. But uh, but that aside, he's been you know he's been very well received by his new teammates. He's been a, a really positive, upbeat presence with his in his new clubhouse. You see him playing cards like not just with other you know you see him hanging out with with the veterans uh, on the Red Sox and getting along famously with them. But you also see him um, really you know really sitting in like and hanging out in a pretty jovial fashion with a lot of the guys who are ticketed for AAA. And so um he seems to be a, a really you know a, the people love being around him there uh in the red sox uniform i, I think that that's the best way to put
3: it i think uh xander bogarts for me i, I got caught up in the the hype of of players we've, we've seen a lot of uh, immediate success recently and that's not how things really work out for top prospects there is an adjustment period uh and i i think we saw that with bogarts what 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 were his holes? What? Why was he struggling? And and has he uh, overcome those? Can we expect a? You know, I expected, or I, I still expect a, an MVP level type uh type talent. Uh, it, it, can we see that in 2015, or it, do we need to continue to be patient? I mean, I, I
4: think that uh, the the lesson of last year, when the, the expectations were, I think, rightly huge after he had excelled to such an absurd degree on the postseason stage. You know, looking, he was the second best Red Sox hitter in the postseason in 2013 behind only Ortiz. He was, you know, exceedingly confident, precocious, you know, sophisticated, like great at bats, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I, I thought that he was going to be really good out of the shoot last year. Obviously, I was wrong about that. And the lesson learned is, you know, you have to kind of, exp- you, you, there are going to be growing pains. And you're not exactly sure when a guy is going to move beyond those growing pains. Uh, you no longer have that definitive ETA of, okay, it's going to be 500 or 300 or 600 major league at bats or what have you. Um, I I think that he's still, there's still a lot of reason to believe that he can be, uh, an elite producer, um, a really spectacular hitter. He's still so very young. He and Mookie Betts were actually born, uh, I think five days apart in, uh, in, in nineteen ninety-two. So they're uh you know they're really young and they're really talented. And Bogart's for for Bogart's was excelling. He was uh he was among the best producing shortstops in all of baseball last year uh through early June and two things happened. One he was moved off of shortstop to accommodate Steven Drew because the Red Sox had to fill in the gaps a little bit with Will Middlebrook's hitting the DL. Um, and signed a shortstop in in Drew. Uh, and two, I think that he had a physical wall, or at least that's the way that he is explaining it now. Um, you know, he was ta- he would talk to me a lot last year about how his wrists just weren't firing through. Uh, you know, they were, his his wrists weren't firing in the same way that they normally do in order to be able to impact the ball. And with the benefit of hindsight, he realized it was because he had just arrived at this physical exhaustion that he hadn't encountered in the minor leagues, um, especially given that he had had a season that lasted through October in 2013. And so um, he went to the former API now known as Exos and he worked out all off season. And so uh, he pronounces himself to be in great physical condition, which he believes is a prelude to, um, you know, to pretty considerable improvement upon a rookie season that showed both signs of uh, great success. He was really, really good for two plus months. And for the last month of the season as well, he hit quite well um, and absolutely horrendous for two and a half to three months in the middle.
3: Uh, So he's in the best shape of his life. That's good to hear. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Well, it's a a short life at this point. So
4: the standard (laughs) isn't set as high as it might be for some other (laughs) guys. Well,
3: you would think that I learned my lesson about tempering expectations, uh, for hyped prospects, but Chris Bryant had two home runs yesterday, one of them off Felix Hernandez, and I am not tempering any expectations. Okay.
4: Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, it'll be, he will be, uh, yes, he'll be inducted while he's still active. He's that good. Yes. Uh,
3: uh, before I let you go, Alex, and you've given me a ton of your time and given some really great stuff here. Uh, what storyline, what event in 2015 are you looking forward to covering for this team? It doesn't have to be the key to the 2015 Red Sox, but something that you're going to have fun with that you you're looking forward to writing about.
4: Well, I mean, as the person who wrote uh, who wrote up 120 to 150 times about Mookie Betts in 2013, um, I, I would have to I would have to go with the uh, with the idea of the uh, of the October 1992 tours uh, Mookie Betts and Xander Bogart guys who I spent a lot of time thinking about while they were coming up through their minor league trajectories, um, seeing the two of them in the lineup on a on a regular basis, I think uh, could be a pretty you know a pretty outrageously uh, dazzling phenomenon um, if they both at the times when those two show uh, you know kind of show all of their considerable tools um, and perform it you know at this kind of exciting. Peak level, there's 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 a pretty good amount of electricity in both players. And so I would say that that probably is uh is is near the top of the list.
3: Before you go, why don't you let the folks know where they can find you on Twitter or any other social media that you may be active on and uh, where they can reach your work?
4: Um, I will. Uh, I, I am on. Uh, well, I write for the Boston Globe so I can be found at uh, Boston Globe dot com slash sports. Um, and uh, and I am on the Twitter at Alex Spear. Um, and that last name is not very easy to spell, but uh, presumably you will have spelled it right in introducing this podcast, so I won't go through the tedious exercise of, of, uh, of articulating the six letters as I would if trying to make a dinner reservation.
3: <laughs> uh, that's Alex Spear, sports reporter at the Boston Globe. I'm Sahadev Sharma. You can follow me on Twitter at Sahadev Sharma. Alex, thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Thanks,
1: Sahadev. Alright, that's it for the Red Sox preview. Thanks for listening. Quick PSA, there is a fun series going on at Banish to the Pen, the blog run by Effectively Wild listeners. It is in the March Madness spirit. It's a bracket of Effectively Wild recurring jokes and characters. There's 32 things from the history of the show matched up against each other. You can vote against the ones that you want to advance. And of course at Banish to the Pen, concurrent with our team preview series. They are running their own team preview series, so you can go read the Red Sox in a Box post at banishedtothepen.com. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Send us questions for this week's listener email show at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes and support our sponsor, the Play Index, by going to baseballreference.com, subscribing to the Play Index using the coupon code BP, and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We will be back tomorrow with the Team Preview Podcast for the Seattle Mariners. All right. Well, thank you, Tim. Uh-oh. We
0: lost him. <laughs> no. That explains the lack of response to that. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> awesome, awesome Uahara fun <laughs> <Huh. laughs> okay. I'll pretend to be Tim. Thanks, Ben. No, that doesn't sound like Tim. That doesn't sound anything like Tim. Do a
1: better Tim impression.
0: Thanks, Ben. No, that's not good. Oh, Try boy. again. Thanks, Ben.
1: Eh.
0: That's pretty
2: good.
1: Okay. Uh, are you back?
2: Yes. You're back. Sorry. I, don't know. I don't know what happened.
1: Yeah, that's okay. We, we did a... <laughs> it. Did... There was a Tim Britton impression while you were gone.
2: Uh, <laughs> I cannot wait to hear it. You
1: probably will. Um... All right. Do you want to do your Uehara fun fact again or no? no? No. Okay. All right. Did you hear
2: that? T-taker no, I, I heard Uehara and then it just went out. Oh, well, I'll tell you after we hang up. I don't want to repeat okay. it again because then Ben will use it in some sort of clips show. <laughs>